Our text for the morning is from Isaiah 43. So I would encourage you, please, to find a copy of the Bible and turn to the 43rd chapter of the prophecy of Isaiah, sort of roughly halfway in the middle of the Bible. The first half of this book ends with a prediction. A prediction which is actually used in the purposes of God to testify of his truthfulness that when it comes to pass, God's people may know that he is the one true and living God. And he gives predictions and promises in this text, in this book, on a number of things, but the prediction that ends the first half of the book is not a pleasant one because it's a prediction that the people of God, that the nation of Judah and the city of Jerusalem would be destroyed and that it would be evacuated of all of its wealth and that the king and the people of that land, the people called by the Lord's own name, would be carried away as captives into far-off Babylon. And chapter 42, which we looked at last Lord's Day, the Lord, through the prophet, challenged the people to think about why they were going through this suffering. Why? And I just want to stop and say, you know, when we find ourselves in extraordinary suffering, it is good to stop and to ask ourselves why. Why is this happening? You know, there are a lot of people that ask that question. You know, when something bad happens, right? What do people want to know? Why? Why? And some people even phrase it this way. Why do bad things happen to what? Good people. Well, there are several problems with that. Where are those good people to whom think bad things are happening, right? Remember Lamentations? Shall a man complain, a man, about the punishment of his sins? But when we ask ourselves the question, we ought to be prepared to hear God's answers as to why these things are happening. And the Lord does not always speak to us with the specificity about our particular circumstance that he does here. But he does give us in the Bible the principles about the way that he works that guide and shape our, ought to guide our and shape our thinking when we come to those points where we're asking ourselves why. Right? So, so the prophet is admonishing God's people to ask themselves why. And here in chapter 42, he dealt with the causes of their suffering. And I just want to come back and sort of recapture this from last week because it is sort of the background for what we're going to read in chapter 43. Okay, Now we can apply chapter 43 verses 1 to 7 in, in broader ways but there is a specific context in which these words were spoken and have the greatest ministry to our hearts when we are in similar kinds of situations. So, once again, why 
were these things happening to the people of Judah? And the Lord's answer was twofold in Isaiah 42. The first answer was because of their own spiritual insensitivity, their blindness and deafness to God. Look at verse 18, back in chapter 42, verse 18. With irony, the Lord says to Judah, Hear, you deaf, and look, you blind, that you may see. Who is blind but my servant? Speaking of Israel, Judah. Who is blind but my servant, or deaf as my messenger whom I send? Who is blind as my dedicated one, or blind as the servant of the Lord? The people of Israel, the people of Judah, were supposed to, out of all of the peoples of the earth, be the Lord's servants, the ones who were dedicated to do His will. And they, as such, were then to be messengers of His to the nations of the earth by the way that they lived and by the truth that they affirmed. But what kind of messengers are those who don't even hear the message themselves? And that's what the Lord said was the case with these people. And notice too that this blindness and this deafness of these people was not a natural inability, but a moral inability. It was an unwillingness to hear. Verse 20, verse 20, Israel, he, Judah, sees many things, but does not, what? Does not observe them. His ears are open, but he does not hear. They're like that child who, in the middle of your lecture, when you pause and stare at him, says, I'm listening, I'm listening. And you say, you may be listening, but you're not hearing what I'm saying. And that, by the way, is characteristic of unregenerate people. It is. It's just characteristic of them by their very nature. And such were, were we all, right? But by the grace of God. that They, they may come and hear... The same sermon that you're listening to right now. The same word being read and preached and proclaimed that you and I are sitting here listening to, but with them it never clicks. It never becomes significant, urgent in any way, believable even. They have ears, but they do not hear, right? And I say that's characteristic of the very nature of unregenerate people. But it is occasionally true even of believers that even one of God's true children may come at a particular point in their life and sit and listen to a sermon and listen, maybe it's you here today and this is the way of God's awakening you now out of this, but but a person who would come and sit and listen to a sermon and who would see and hear 
that literally they need to change. And then they turn around and they walk out and it's like it's gone in one ear and out the other. And, and, and they've listened to countless sermons in the course of their lives. But they've come to a point of sort of deafness, temporary deafness, you might say, where they do not hear God's word to them. I want to ask you, do you ever think about the fact or wonder if the pastor, when he is preaching God's word, actually has you in mind? When he's thinking about the application of those texts? And here's the more important question. Do you ever think that God himself has you in mind when you hear the word of God being preached? Are you, do you have ears to hear? To really listen, to say, God, speak to me. I'm, I'm listening. Speak, Lord, for your servant heareth. Right? These people were experiencing what they were experiencing. God says, first of all, because of their own spiritual deadness, their own spiritual insensitivity to God. But secondly, he says that they're experiencing what they're experiencing because of God himself. That the suffering that they're enduring is actually the work of God. Notice in verse 24, again, still in, in chapter 20, 20 uh, chapter 42, rather. Uh, verse 24, who, here's the question they're supposed to ask themselves, who gave up Jacob to the looter and Israel to the plunderers? And the answer is, was it not the Lord against whom we have sinned? In, whom we, in whose ways they would not walk and whose laws they would not obey. So he poured on them the heat of his anger and the might of battle, and it set him on fire all around, but he did not understand. It burned him up, but he did not take it to heart. Do we see, do we actually see that the Lord, the Lord is behind our suffering? Right? Are we, are we, Biblical enough in our whole outlook on life as to know that the sufferings of life are more than just naturalistic phenomena or products of chance or clashes between civilization. That there, that whatever causes you might point to, that behind all of those secondary causes, there is a first and primary cause, right? That's our worldview. And behind all of those things, including the suffering that we experience, is who? Is God. And that God's work in bringing suffering into our lives is often, not always, but often, for the chastening of his people, for their sin. It is certainly always for the discipline of his people. Because by discipline, by the Lord's discipline, we mean more than just chastening for sin. Because your discipline of your children is more than that, right? I hope that not all you do with your children is spank them 24 hours a day, seven days a week. Just come here and get your whooping, kid. Just line them all up. I'm just going to go down. the. It, it, it's more than that, right? Discipline is teaching, 
It's training. It's correcting. It's challenging thinking. It's educating, right? That's what we mean when we talk about dis- the discipline or the training of our children. And that is certainly what the Lord is about. And he uses all means at his disposal, all of his varied providences, including suffering that he brings into our lives to further those ends, to accomplish his purposes in our lives. The Lord is behind these things. Earlier I read to you Lamentations 3. You know that Jeremiah was living through this very time that Isaiah was looking forward to. The captivity of the people of God, the destruction of Jerusalem and the carrying away into Babylonian captivity. Isaiah foresaw it. Jeremiah lived through it. And Jeremiah witnessed firsthand that destruction and the chastening and the suffering. And you you heard how he described it, right? I mean, just think about this for a moment. Let's take a few moments and contemplate. This is the way that God's people feel. This is the way that we the experiences that we have. And Jeremiah is wise enough to acknowledge that this is the Lord's doing. He says, the Lord has turned his hand against us again and again. You ever felt like that? I mean, not just that the Lord was bringing some difficult discipline into your life, but that he did it and then he did something else, and then something else, and then something else, and he just sort of gradually let the waters come up on you, right? First they're at your knees, and you're like, whoa, this is getting a little bit scary. And then they're at your waist, and you're like, oh, Lord, please help. And then they're at your chest. You're saying, Lord, how much more can I take? Until finally they're at your neck, and one more drop, and you won't be able to breathe, and you say, Lord, what are you doing? Right? This is the way sometimes God deals with his people. He's turned his hand against them again and again in an unrelenting way. In his disciplining, his training, and yes, sometimes his chastening of his children. He describes the judgment of God upon them as being besieged and enveloped with bitterness and tribulation. Can you picture that? You're in the city of Jerusalem, and the walls are all around you, and it's like, what are you surrounded by? Bitterness and tribulation. And of course, in Jeremiah's day, that took a very concrete form in the form of the Babylonian armies. The Lord surrounds his people, and he pictures it this way, as being walled up in the city, and the army of God is surrounding you, and there's no path out. Because you know what most of the time happens when we are in a place of chastening of the Lord? What are we looking for? A way a way out. right? And there is a way that God has ordained for us, but we're often looking for the back exit. We're looking for a way to short-circuit this trouble rather than submitting to the chastening and the discipline of the Lord, really learning what it is that God wants for us to learn. And, and we've talked before about the many ways that people do that, try to look for a way out, but, the, but Jeremiah says the Lord has blocked up all of our ways with blocks of stones, eliminating any possibility of relief. And, and then 
have you ever, ever experienced this? Jeremiah says, and, and I called and cried for help, but he shuts out my prayers even. I mean, has God, has God ever worked in your life in such a difficult providence that you felt like he wasn't even listening to you pray anymore? That your prayers were just bouncing off the ceiling? This is, this is the way God is dealing with his people here. The second London Baptist Confession of Faith makes a very interesting point in one of the paragraphs where it talks about the providence of God. And it says this, The most wise, righteous, and gracious God doth oftentimes leave leave for a season his own children. He leaves for a season his own children to manifold temptations and the corruptions of their own heart in order to chastise them for their former sins. The Lord does sometimes take his hand off, as it were, so that our flesh just has full reign in order to do what? To expose us for who we are and who we would be apart from His saving grace, uh, exposing those areas that still need yet to be brought fully under the authority and lordship of Jesus Christ, and to cause us to say, Lord, change me. Do this work in me. Save me. Deliver me. But he, but he lets, lets his people sometimes go on that way for a little while, as if he's not even answering their prayers. Jeremiah says the Lord was like a bear, just lying in wait, ready to tear me open, to tear us open. It was like a, an archer that was poised with his arrow, ready to let it go right into my heart, right into my soul. He brought us to public disgrace among the nations. Brought shame. You know, that is the way the Lord does work sometimes in chastening. Right? What is the Lord about? He's about exposing sin in your life. And sometimes we're at such a place in our lives where in order for us to really come to grips with our depravity and our need for sanctification, we're going to need to be exposed to shame to be shamed, and sometimes even publicly. This is the discipline of the Lord. Some of you have experienced that. Some of you have been brought to shame. All of us have been put to shame at some way, in some way or another, but some of us in a, very, in a very public way, whether it was before our spouse, before our family, maybe even before our church, before our friends, our brothers in Christ. What is the Lord doing? He's He's bringing this pressure to bear upon his people. This is the Lord's work. Or maybe maybe you've even come to to say with with Jeremiah, my soul, at this point, my soul is bereft of peace. I have forgotten what happiness even is. Can you imagine one of God's children ever getting to a point where they say that? I tell you, there have been many, many occasions where God's people have gotten to that point. I don't even remember what it's like to be happy anymore. In the trial, in the chastening of the Lord's providence in their lives has gone on. 
where they're just really struggling and maybe they've even been tempted to say, my endurance has perished and so has my hope from the Lord. The Lord is surely done with me and I'm ready to just give up. I have no more hope. I'll tell you, I've talked to Christians like that who have been tempted to say that. They're right at that point until they're finally to the bottom of where they need to be to really look up to the Lord and come to Him and to have the powerful, sanctifying grace of restoration begin to take place in their lives. I mean, it's almost at that point. That's, I mean, you talk about as deep as you can go, right? That's it. I have no more hope. And sometimes the Lord's pressure on His people has to get them that deep. But, I, but uh, Isaiah is saying to his people, do you realize that in this situation where, you're, where you feel like that, who's behind it? And the answer is that it is God. God is behind it. And the temptation is to say, well, God has given up on me then. God's abandoned me. There is no hope for me. And I want to remind you that we're now in a section of Scripture In a section of Isaiah, remember the first half ends with the prediction of chapter 39, and then the second half begins in chapter 40, verse 1, with the words, what? Comfort. Comfort my people. We're in a section of comfort and hope for the people of God. It's because God's chastening and His discipline and His training is meant for their good. The Lord chastens the ones He, what? Loves and chastises every son whom he receives. In fact, if you are left without chastening, in which all of God's children have participated, you are illegitimate children and not even the sons of God and daughters of God. If sin brings misery in your life, you ought to get on your knees and praise God. I mean it. Because I'm going to tell you, there's a lot of people who are never miserable about their sin. In their sin. They seem to prosper. They just go along in open, clear rebellion against God and it seems like everything is going okay. And never a thought about it. Never anguish of soul. My friend, if you experience that kind of anguish in moments in your life, you ought to say, thank you Lord, whether God's chastening comes through a parent, a parent in your life, a mother or father, or whether it comes through a pastor and a church, or through a civil authority, or sort of directly from God, the purpose of his discipline, of his dark providences in the lives of his children is always to teach to correct, to test, and expose, and purify, and cleanse, and restore them to himself. That is his purpose, right? Jeremiah says, the Lord will not cast off forever, nor will he be angry forevermore. But though he he caused grief, yet he will have compassion according to the abundance of his steadfast love. He goes on to say, 
God does not afflict from his, you remember what we read this morning? He doesn't afflict from his heart. In other words, that his uh, harsh providences for his children are not are not what, what brings him joy any more than you take glee and have glee and take delight in punishing your, your, your wayward child. And he doesn't approve, Jeremiah says. He does not approve of all of the evil things that he sometimes uses to chasten his children. The Lord does. He uses things that are clearly not his will in the moral sense. They're evil. He does not approve of those, Jeremiah says. Nevertheless, he goes on to say, who has spoken and it came to pass except it be from the, the Lord, unless he commanded it. Is it not from the mouth of the Lord that both good and bad come? Jeremiah is saying the same thing Isaiah says, right? Where, who's the source of all of this? Where is it coming from? Why is this happening to us? And the answer on one hand is because of our own blindness and deafness to God. And on the other hand, the answer is this is from God himself. This is the Lord's doing for our good. John Newton, the author of Amazing Grace, also bore this testimony. Now listen to this the experience of one of God's children. I asked the Lord that I might grow in faith and love and every grace, might more of His salvation know and seek more earnestly His face. Twas He who taught me thus to pray, and He, I trust, has answered prayer, but it has been in such a way as almost drove me to despair. I hoped that in some favored hour, at once he'd answer my request, and by his love's constraining power, subdue my sins and give me rest. Instead of this, he made me feel the hidden evils of my heart, and let the angry powers of hell assault my soul in every part. Yea, more than this, with his own hand he seemed intent to aggravate my woe. Crossed all the fair designs I schemed. Blasted my gourds like Jonah and laid me low. Lord, why is this? I trembling cried. Wilt thou pursue thy worm to death? Tis in this way the Lord replied, I answer prayer for grace and faith. These inward trials I employ from self and pride and to set thee free and break thy schemes of earthly joy that thou mayst find thine all in me. That's the way the Lord works in the lives of his people. This is what, exactly what the Lord was doing in the lives of the people of Judah, the believing remnant of his people, is probably what he's often doing in your life. I can certainly testify that this is the way of the Lord in mine. And that looking back on what God has done, I'm always stunned and amazed and humbled and thankful 
And for those who are really sensitive like this to what the Lord is doing, who are yielded to Him, who acknowledge His chastening in their lives and are seeking to understand and to grow from it, the Lord gives an assurance of sustaining grace. In chapter 43, verses 1-7. to And it begins, well, let's just read it first. That was like the longest introduction ever, right? But now, thus says the Lord, He who created you, O Jacob, He who formed you, O Israel, fear not, for I have redeemed you. I have called you by name. You are mine. When you pass through the waters, I will be with you. And through the rivers, they shall not you sh- they shall not overwhelm you. When you walk through the fire, you shall not be burned, and the flame shall not consume you. For I am the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel, your Savior. I give Egypt as your ransom, Cush and Seba in exchange for you, because you are precious in my eyes and honored, I love you. I give men in return for you, peoples in exchange for your life. Fear not, for I am with you. I will bring your offspring from the east and from the west I will gather you. I will say to the north, give up, and to the south, do not withhold. Bring my sons from afar and my daughters from the end of the earth, everyone who is called by my name, whom I created for my glory, whom I formed and made. Assurance of sustaining grace in God's dark providences and especially and particularly in his chastening work. That assurance begins with the Lord identifying himself as the author of that grace. Look at verse 1. Isn't that exactly what he's doing? You make sure that what I'm telling you is what the text is doing. That's part of your good listening, right? Verse 1, the Lord is identifying himself as the author of that grace. And how does he identify himself? He is the Lord... And he is the one who did certain actions. What did he do? Four things. You see it in verse 1? You following along? Who is our Lord? He is the Lord who created you, O Jacob. He who formed you, O Israel. And the application is here already. Fear not. Why? Because thirdly, I have redeemed you, and fourthly, I have called you by name. And the implication of that is, you're mine. So, you know, think about this for a moment. What does the Lord say? He gives these applications and draws out these implications that sustain them in their trial and in their, under their chastening based on His work in bringing them to Himself. How does He do that? He says, I created you. I created you. And of course, the Lord created that people out of literally nothing, from the, from the loins of a man and from the womb of a woman who were beyond the ability to conceive in any sort of natural way. But you go back to even to the first man. You want to you know, take this all the way to, to the application to all humanity. Think about Adam. 
You know, this is the very word used here that uh, the Bible uses in the beginning. God created the heaven and the earth. He says, I created not only the heavens and the earth, I created you. And then secondly, he says, I have what? I have formed you. Now, I think what he's doing is, you see if this is not right, but I think what he's doing is, he's with every one of these terms, he's becoming more and more and more intimate with his people. Not only did I create you, I formed you. Now this is the word that's not used in Genesis 1, but in Genesis chapter 2, when the Bible says that God formed the man out of the dust of the ground. This is a word with a little more intimacy in it, right? God spoke a word and everything was in the beginning, but then he got his hands dirty, so to speak, by getting down and shaping a man in his own image and likeness. And then he says, I have, what's the next term? I have redeemed you. Now we're talking about an even closer connection. The the background of this is the redemption that God provided for in the Mosaic Law. And you remember that when God gave the Israelites their land and their possessions, each one belonged in the family in perpetuity. But there may come a point of difficulty in a person's life at which he was dispossessed of his inheritance. He sold part of it or or was somehow it was it was he was separated from it and and he would be left without uh, an inheritance. He would be left without uh, what he needed to provide. And so the Lord made provision for that to be brought back in a couple of different ways, but one of them was through the work of a of a family member, a close kinsman who would come into his or her situation and would be the means of redeeming that property back to that family. And, of course, there's a book in our Bible that uh, just pictures this, illustrates this so beautifully, right? The book of, yeah, the book of Ruth. The book of Ruth, and, of course, the near kinsman is a man by the name of Boaz. There's actually someone closer, but he's unwilling to pay the price and all that it meant financially and maritally and for his own inheritance. He was unwilling to pay the price. But here is a close kinsman who is willing to pay the price. And in that sense, and in that way, Naomi could have her inheritance redeemed, right? And of course, the Lord is saying, that's what I do for you, isn't it? I come to you as a, as, as kin to you. And as kin to you, willing to pay the price, willing to do what it takes that you might be redeemed, that you might be bought back. And then the Lord uses this term, finally, not only have I created you and formed you and redeemed you, but I have, what's the last one? Called you by name. Now that, and what's the implication of called you by name? What's the last phrase? You are mine. You, this is what happened 27 years ago. I'm going to get in trouble, but I think it's 27 years ago when I stood in a church in Virginia on top of a hill, a little white church, and a woman came down the aisle, and I made her mine. And I called her by my name. Right? That's what we're talking about here. 
You want to talk about coming to the most intimate of relationships that can possibly describe be described in the human realm, this is it. I have called you by name and made you mine. That's where the Lord that's what the Lord says to his people. Right? You have you you have literally become one with me through Jesus Christ. And if you are gods, if you are gods like that, I'm going to tell you he will chasten and he will train and he will purify. He will test your faith through great suffering at times. But you will never stop being his. Right? You are mine. Then in verse 2, he begins to speak about his preservation of his people in the face of the very tribulations that he has brought into their lives. When you pass through the waters, I will be with you. And through the rivers, they shall not overwhelm you. When you walk through the fire, you will not be burned, and the flame shall not consume you. Remember the end of chapter 42? The Lord said that he would bring, what does it say? Uh, let me find it. it. I will set him on fire all around. I will burn him, the Lord says. So this flame in verse 2 here, guess what? That's the Lord's flame. I'm going to tell you, whatever circumstance you're looking at in your life that, that is troublesome and hard and difficult and and maybe even chastening, that is the Lord's circumstance. The devil who vexes you, Luther said, is the Lord's devil. This is the Lord's, and he will preserve his people through it. He would uphold them. For Listen, for the child of God, this flame was not meant to be a flame that consumed them, but a fire that tested and purified them. Like, like when you put metal into the hot flame and the furnace and the dross, the impurities in that metal rise to the top and can be skimmed off so that what you end up with is a more pure metal than what you had before. This is the way the Lord is at work in you and in me. If you're his child, he is putting you into the flame, but it's the Lord's flame and the Lord brings you through that flame so that you come out the other side, not burned up, but purified. He burns away what's wood and hay and stubble so that you might become pure as gold. But the Lord sustains His children. He brings them through. Like He brought Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego through the flame of fire that did not consume. The Lord brings His children through all of their suffering. And that may, you know, in which you're trying to apply this, you know, I, I know that it begins to be Challenging for some people because you just say, you say, well, I know God kept Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and they didn't get burned. But what about those saints of God who faced the torch at other times and whose bodies were literally consumed? What, what does this promise mean for them? Well, how does it apply? And the Lord is telling us here that He brings His people through all of the dark providences and even the chastenings that He brings into their lives and he brings them out the other side. And I want to remind you that death, physical death in this life, is no death for those who are the Lord's people. 
that he does, in fact, bring them through even the flames that consume their bodies into an eternal life that will never be consumed. Amen? He does that for his people. And they are upheld by his grace through that, even through death itself. January of 1956. I'll never forget. I remember, I don't remember that date, but I remember reading a book about the events that happened in that month to five missionaries in Ecuador who were burdened to reach the Alka people, as they were called then, the Wadani people, with the gospel of Jesus Christ. You know the name, perhaps, Jim Elliott and his four missionary companions. Operation Alka, it was called, and they took off in their plane after months of reaching out to this very, very isolated tribe of native peoples trying to make first real contact, face-to-face contact with them in hopes of preaching the gospel to them one day. And as many of you know, their plane landed there on the banks of the Kurodai River, and those five missionaries were speared to death and their bodies dumped into the river. Well, the day that those missionaries took off, as happened most of the time when they took off, the wives would be gathered around the, the radio to try to communicate with them as long as they were able, and always to pray together, to seek the Lord's face, that the Lord would protect His people, that He would protect His servants. And that day, like every other day, they gathered to wait on the Lord, to bring His people through the water and through the fire, to uphold and sustain them through all things, right? Well, a man by the name of Cornell Kappa was a Life magazine photographer. He was sent to Ecuador shortly after the report of the deaths of these five missionaries to cover the deaths and the story for Life magazine. And he had uh, an interview with Elizabeth Elliot, the 29-year-old widow of Jim Elliot. And she had chosen to stay in Ecuador even after the death of her husband with her young daughter and to continue to minister, to try to reach out to the people of that area. And speaking with Elizabeth Elliot Betty, as she was called then, Cornell said, quote, I wonder how Betty could reconcile Jim's death at the hands of the Alcas and the Lord's apparent failure to protect him from them. Isn't that where a lot of people are, right? Where's the promise here? How does it come to fulfill? He said, I wondered, how does she reconcile this? He said, her answer came back without hesitation. I prayed for the protection of Jim. The answer the Lord gave transcended what I had in mind. He gave protection from disobedience. And through Jim's death, accomplished results the magnitude of which only eternity will show. Lord, was the Lord or was the Lord not sustaining him through the fire and through the flood? Absolutely. And indeed, the Christian church is established among the Waodani even to this day that will resound to God's glory for all the ages and ages and ages to come. And countless missionaries and just God's people have been inspired to give their lives in service to Christ because of the way that the Lord answered this prayer. Or you think of Stephen, who is not spared the striking of the stones upon his body. 
But what is absolutely true is that the Lord sustained him even through that. And his face lit up, you remember this? With the glories of Christ. His whole countenance beamed with the radiance of his faith. Was the Lord sustaining him? Was the Lord fulfilling this verse with regard to these people? Absolutely he was. And in particular, the Lord preserves his people through the fires of chastening. And it feels like their sin and all the results of their sin is just going to consume them and destroy them. The Lord says, no, I will uphold them. I will preserve them. They will come out on the other side of the fire refined. Do you want that? Do you really want that? Do you want to be refined, purified, and sanctified before the Lord? You say, Lord, do whatever it takes, but make me holy. And why is it, do you think, that these people will not be destroyed? Why do you think they'll be sustained through the fire and the flood? And by the way, if you've got, if you've got fire on one side and you've got flood on the other side, you pretty much have the whole gamut of, of the trials of, that can come upon humanity, right? It's like just kind of picking ends of a spectrum here. So you, so you're somewhere in between, right? Maybe you're not in the fire, maybe you're not in the flood, but you're, you're somewhere here. And the Lord says, I will sustain you. Why is that? Why? Well, here's the answer the Lord gives. And it's in verses 3 and 4. And I say why, because of, again, the wording of the Scripture. So it's your job to be good listeners and make sure this is where the text is going, right? Verse 3, what's the very first word? Okay, most translations is the word for. And in verse 4, the very first word is the word because. For, because. So I'm asking why, not why is this happening. We've already established that back in chapter 42. But why is the Lord upholding and preserving these people through this? I mean, didn't they bring it on themselves? Yeah? Haven't you brought things upon yourself? Why would the Lord pledge Himself to uphold those kind of people? Here are the answers the Lord gives. Verse 3, For because I am the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel, your Savior. Period. Okay? You want your first answer? That's why. Because He is who He is. And He is your Savior. You belong to Him. You're His child. He is the Savior of His people. And, I mean, that means something. In concrete terms, that means something. That's, that's going to have feet to it. What does it look like? Well, He says, and I will give, I give Egypt as your what? I give Egypt as your ransom. Cush and Seba, which is part of Egypt, the southern parts of Egypt. I give Egypt and Cush and Seba in exchange for you. Now, when did the Lord do that? Well, remember back in the Exodus? God actually secured Israel's deliverance from Egypt at the price of the death of the firstborn. And for his own people, what did he do? Well, he provided a substitute, didn't he? And he gave him a lamb. You kill that lamb and you put its blood 
on your house, and the Lord, the angel of the Lord, who brings death and the judgment of God upon that whole land, he will pass over you. But the firstborn of Egypt now, they paid with their what? They paid with their lives, didn't they? I mean, that's what it ended up costing. You think, all the all these nine other plagues the Lord did and did and did and did and did, and it wasn't enough, it wasn't enough. Pharaoh said, no, 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 no. It, what, what was the price that Egypt had to pay in order for them to be free? It was the death of their firstborn. It was the lives of those people that were given in ransom, as it were, paid in order to secure Israel's release. The Lord said, I was willing to do that for my children. Now, I just want to remind you that we're not talking about the death of innocent people, right? As if there are any of those. We're talking about the deaths of people who resisted the Lord, who were born in iniquity and sin and rebellion to God. But the Lord gave Egypt as a ransom for His people. The Lord is willing to sacrifice others for the sake of His people. Look again at the reason stated in verse 4. You want to ask yourself, why would God uphold a sinful people under His chastening? Bring them through like that to the other side. The answer is in verse 5, because you are precious in my eyes and honored and I love you because of these things I give men in return for you, peoples in exchange for your life. Why does the Lord say? Because I love you. Now, that one takes some unpacking a little bit, doesn't it? Because God's love is not like ours. It's so much better. Our love is drawn out of us, right? By something good and pleasurable and delightful that we see in someone else. Maybe it's their beauty or their personality or whatever it is. But we see something in them that makes us like them, makes us respond to them. We say sometimes love is a, is a response, right? But I want to ask you, to what does God, in an ultimate sense, respond? What controls how He acts? And the answer is nothing. God is independent. He's not responding to something in us that draws out this love within Himself. No, my friend, God is love in Himself. And I say His love is so much better than ours because you know what happens when we love someone, something good and sweet and beautiful and kind and nice that, that draws us, draws out our affections toward that person? What happens when they change? Well, then... Sometimes we say, well, I've fallen out of love because they're no longer lovely to me. But God's love, my friend, is rooted in Himself, in His own intra-Trinitarian being, and it spills out of Himself as the overflow of His grace and kindness, not because of anything in us. He said to Israel, remember, back in Exodus I, or Deuteronomy, I loved you, I loved you because I loved you. I mean, there's no human explanation for it. There's an explanation within the divine being that we cannot even understand. And that is good news in those times when we prove to be unlovely. Right? 
Because if, if God's love, I'm telling you, if God's love were dependent on how lovely you were, you would have lost His love so long ago. And when that, when we find ourselves being very unlovely people, then we're tempted to be fearful. We're gonna, God's finally given up on us. He's going to abandon us. And it's that fear that God is targeting here. That fear is overcome by the affirmations of his love. Remember the scripture says, perfect love casts out fear. What kind of love does? Perfect love. Only God's love. And so you see, this is where he's driving here. And I know we're running out of time. But he's saying in application, fear not. For I have redeemed you. Fear not, for I am with you. Why do we not fear? Because his love is rooted in himself, not in me. One songwriter said it like this, All my life I've, been, I've held on to this fear, these thistles and vines that ensnare and entwine, what flowers appeared. It's the fear that I'll fall one too many times. It's the fear that his love is no better than mine. And his love is so much better than ours. It is everlasting love. You ask yourself, why are these people not abandoned? Why are they upheld? Why do they go through the fire and come out the other side? The answer is all in the heart and mind of God himself who is love. That's where the answer is. And he says in verse 4, because I love you. Look at verse 4 again. Because I love you like this, I give Men in return for you. Peoples in exchange for your life. And, it, and I just want to tell you, it's not just that God was willing to sacrifice his enemies in the place of his people. The Bible says that God gave himself in his only son so that instead of merely sacrificing his enemies for the sake of his son's he sacrificed his son for the sake of those who were, in fact, his enemies. This text literally reads, okay, you might want to underline the word man here, just write this beside it. It literally reads this way, I give Adam in return for you. I give man, singular, but of course we can take it in terms of, 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 of a people. But if you can see beyond this, you can see to whom? That second Adam from above. That one whose one act of obedience on the cross, his lifetime act of obedience was the one that redeemed us. Why? Because it was given, as the text says in verse 4, in return for you, in exchange for you. Friends, that's the gospel, isn't it? You call the gospel the great exchange. Christ given in my place. Him sacrificed by God. He's that lamb that took the place of the firstborn in the household of God's people so that they might be saved. That's the, that's the one we're talking about here. The one who is exchanged for us. The one who is given in return for us. This is the gospel. So who does the Lord uphold? Those for whom the price has been paid. Those for whom a ransom has been given in exchange for their own souls. And so to true Israel, he says in verse 5 and 6, closing now, Fear not, for I am with you. I will bring your offspring from the east, and from the west I will gather you from the north, say give up, to the south do not withhold, and I will bring my sons and my daughters from, a, from the ends of the earth. In other words, you can see by the language here itself that 
What Isaiah envisions is not merely the return of Jews from Babylon in the east, but a global ingathering, and not just of Jews, but verse 7, everyone who is called by my name, whom I have created for my glory and formed and made. And he comes back to where he began in verse 1. The application then, friends, simply today is this. If you're a child of God, fear not. When the dark providences of God come, even perhaps when you may be under or or be wondering whether you are under the chastening of God, perhaps, fear not, for you were bought with a price. You're His. And nothing can separate you from the love of God that is in Himself. I mean, not tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger, or sword. Nothing separates us from the love of God. So stop being afraid, even under the chastening of God, that God has abandoned you, that He's forgotten you, that you're too far gone. As long as it is today, do not harden your heart, but return to the Lord. And you know what you will find Him to be? Like the father of the prodigal. Remember the story? The prodigal comes, and what does the father do? He runs out to greet that son. This is the way the Lord receives, ultimately, those who come to him, those who are chastened under his hand. Don't let fear keep you from going home. If this is true under the Lord's judgment, then it is most certainly true in all of our trials. Fear not, for I have redeemed you. I have called you by name. You are mine, right? How amazing it is that we belong to him. Loved with everlasting love. Led by grace, that love to know. Spirit breathing from above, thou hast taught me it is so. Oh, this full and perfect peace. Oh, this transport all divine in a love which cannot cease. I am his. And he is mine. Taste the goodness of the Lord. Welcomed home to his embrace. All his love as blood outpoured seals the pardon of his grace. Can I doubt his love for me when I trace that love's design? By the cross of Calvary, I am his. And he is mine. His forever. Only His, who the Lord and me shall part. Ah, with what a rest of bliss Christ can fill the loving heart. Heaven and earth may fade and flee. Firstborn light in gloom decline. But while God and I shall be, I am what? I am His. And He is mine. Heavenly Father, please, Lord, we ask that you will take and use your word to give life, to sustain life, and to shape the life of Christ in all who are truly yours today. I pray it in his name. Amen.